The passage that we'll be looking at from the gospel for our service today is printed there in your bulletin for Mark, the 12th chapter. We'll get to that in just a moment. But the uh, now that the Experiencing God series is officially over, we're back to going through the lectionary. The lectionary brings us to this passage in, in Matthew and the Old Testament passage in, in Ruth and the psalm that we read as our responsive call to worship. And the passages have something in common. They're all kind of dealing with love and relationship and connection to one another. And love is, it's a popular topic in society. It, it always has been. It affects each and every one of us. It's a popular topic from classical poetry to modern pop songs. Uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, for instance, began her sonnet asking, how do I love me? Let the, let me count the ways. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. And, and 60 years ago, the, the four aces sang, love is a many splendored thing. More recently, the country singer Johnny Lee was, if you know the song, looking for love in all the wrong places. That's right. And Bono from U2 crewed, I have climbed the highest mountains, I have run through the fields only to be with you, but still haven't found what I'm looking for. So the love that we're seeking, the things that we're seeking, not, it's not only romantic love, you know, as, as Ruth and Naomi in that story in the Old Testament, Ruth turns and says, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God, your people, my people, and, and Heaven forbid that, that anything other than death separate us. So that, that kind of loyalty, that kind of friendship, that kind of commitment to one another far exceeds just even thinking about love in purely romantic terms. But when people are looking for the love that they need, and when we search ourselves for the kind of love we want for ourselves and the type of love we'd like to show other people, do we look to Jesus? I mean, is that, our, is that our first inclination? There was a certain teacher of Jewish law that came to Jesus thinking that he might have some answers about life's most pressing questions regarding love and devotion and where we should be spending our energies. And in Mark 12, starting in verse 28, we read, One of the teachers of the law, came and heard them debate. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Well, the most important one, the answer Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor." as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far 
from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the passages that were read earlier in the service. We thank you for this teaching from your gospel. Enlighten our hearts and our minds now that, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. So in order to do your word, we need to apply it to our lives. Bring it home to us today, Lord, through what I speak, through the words that your spirit speaks to those that are listening. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So the context of this passage, it, it talks about a teacher of the law approaching Jesus because he had heard that he had answered the, this other question wisely. And, and what that was about is that the Sadducees had approached Jesus debating the role of, of marriage and the law and the implications in the afterlife. And for the Sadducees, this was only really a hypothetical question. You know, they posed to him that, that, you know, a woman loses her husband and then remarries and he dies and remarries and he dies seven times. So at the resurrection, you know, who's, whose wife will she be? Now, this was a, a what we call a, a specious argument. It was not an honest question. It was misleading because the Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection. So this is kind of your classic gotcha sort of puzzle that they're posing to Jesus. And he kind of sets them straight and says, hey, listen, and, you know, in the life to come, we'll, we'll either be given in marriage or be married. You know, that's, that's not what's important here. And this is kind of an aside, but I think it's an important one because we've been talking a fair amount about sharing our faith and starting to pray for those relationships that we feel called to, where God might lead us an opportunity to build a relationship, to invite someone out for a cup of coffee or a meal, and to build relationships so that we have the opportunity to share our story. And as we do that, as we share our faith, as people come to know that we're a Christian, we're going to hear all sorts of hypotheticals. Maybe you've already heard the people coming to you with certain uh, objections to the faith or to religion in the first place or Christianity in general. You know, the person that asked, for instance, how could a loving God kill innocent people or some similar objection is usually not asking a hypothetical question because if you, if you give the most brilliant answer in the world that they're going to change their mind. I mean, have you, have you ever had somebody raise a question to you and, and in that moment you had a pretty good answer? Did that, did that solve their dilemma? No, not, not usually. Not usually. I find that more often than not they're asking a, a head question for a heart and a soul reason. So how do you respond? How do you respond? Especially if, you feel, if you're unlike Jesus, you're putting this gotcha moment and you, you know, the right answer just doesn't pop into your mind. Well, um, a couple weeks back, I introduced the BLESS acronym. B was begin with prayer. L, does anybody remember what the L was for? I know I'm putting you on the spot. Love is a good one. Love is a good L word, but I'm, I'm pointing to my ear for a reason. Listen. 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 And how do you 
how do you listen to someone else? You ask, you ask good questions and then you shut up. All right? So if somebody comes to you with this hypothetical argument, I would encourage you to respond to these questions with, with kind of clarifying questions. It's the old tactic of answering a question with a question, right? But if you're doing so with sincere motives, it's okay. It's not, it's not dishonest to do so. So a lot of times I'll say, you know what, that's an excellent question. And yeah, I can see why it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense at all for, for a loving God to kill innocent people. Clearly you've given this some, some thought. What do, you, what do you think? And usually the way that they respond to that follow-up question will, will direct you in where to go from there. Either it'll, it'll tell you a lot about their motivation, for instance, that, that either maybe it's a moral smokescreen, that they really have no intent of, of engaging you in an honest conversation, they just want to throw something in your face as kind of an attack and then back off. Or you might, you might hear their story, that it's not about the hypothetical innocence out there that God has killed, but, but they lost a child in pregnancy, or their younger brother or sister was killed tragically, or they lost their mom and dad as, when they were a kid, much too young. And that's, so that's the real issue, right? Not the hypothetical. So if you get caught up in arguing some sort of theological treatise for, for why God remains omnipotent even though bad things happen, you're going to miss them because it's a heart and soul sort of question. So we come to this passage where Jesus is asked, sincerely, what the greatest commandment is. That is, what should take precedence in our religious observance? Right, The teachers of the law, Sadducees and Pharisees were very religious people. And despite however you may feel about the um, relative spirituality of our nation right now, we're still a religious people. You can drive around town and see churches and synagogues and other places of worship. So we are religious people. So there is coming with this question like, okay, if I'm going to spend my life in religious pursuit, what's the most important religious observance? And what does Jesus say? Where does, where does Jesus go? Does Jesus say, aha, I've been waiting for this moment because everything that preceded me was, you know, forget that. It's all about me. No, he doesn't do that. He goes to scripture. He goes to scripture. And, and namely the precepts laid down in Deuteronomy and Leviticus by God through Moses. And Moses is somebody that would have been an important teacher and central to this Jewish leader's faith and religious observance. He goes to those scriptures that were shared by God through Moses for the people of God. As they were coming out of slavery and forming a new nation as God's holy and distinct people. So from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, when your hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then Leviticus 19, 18. That's, that's where the love your neighbor as yourself passage comes from. The larger context is do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. 
And clearly the questioner, this individual that comes to Jesus, is a student of God's word as well because his response, in his response, he alludes to Hosea, the prophet Hosea 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 6, when he says, all of these things, you, I agree with you, all of these things are more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, interestingly enough, that passage in Hosea 6 is speaking of God's judgment on the nation of Israel because their love for him was like the morning mist or the dew. You know, it quickly evaporated. And that therefore, God had sent them prophets that would kind of lash them to pieces with the tongue of the prophet with judgment. Because, and then the punchline is in Hosea 6.6, 6, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So if we want to live in a way that is pleasing to God and following Jesus' instruction here, we should look briefly at what it means to have the kind of love for God and for neighbor that this passage speaks of. If we want our faith to be more substantial than the morning mist, you know, it's there for a moment and then it's gone. For the dew that burns off in the early morning hours, we better take this teaching seriously. So what does it mean to love with our hearts and with our minds, with our soul and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves? Well, first let's look at our hearts. Our heart is kind of that, it's that idea of devotion or dedication, the types of things and the sorts of people that we treasure, that we hold in our hearts. And to illustrate, I think that animals can be, how many of you have pets or like animals, all right? Animals can be a great reflection of the kind of heart love that we should aspire to in our relationship with God. From from John Katz, an American journalist, I like this quote. It says, Animals have come to mean so much in our lives. We live in a fragmented and disconnected culture. Politics are ugly. Religion is struggling. Technology is stressful. And the economy is unstable. What's one thing that we have in our lives that we can depend on? A dog or a cat loving us unconditionally every day, very faithfully. Amen? Those of you that have had pets and feel that way? I think sometimes we don't feel this sort of love towards God because we're not convinced that God feels that sort of way towards us. It is not hard to love someone who loves you this sort of way. You know, it's not hard to love a dog who greets you with excitement every time he sees you, or, or a cat that curls up on your lap and just purrs and purrs and stretches their neck out to be rubbed. It's not hard to love someone who has that sort of love and affection for you. So if you struggle to find ways to love God with your whole heart, I would encourage you to lean more into how much God loves you and, and, and try to experience more of that. It might mean reprogramming some of the messages that you have wired into your brain, that God is disappointed with you, that you let God down. All those sorts of lies of the enemy that can sneak in 
and rob our joy and rob our love and our devotion for God. And that rewiring, that kind of comes to the next point, loving God with our minds. And so if our heart is our, our seat of devotion, our minds is, is kind of that place where um, we have our, our memories, we, we store a lot in our brains, right? It shapes our thinking, our attitudes and behaviors. And much of what we've got stored up there isn't godly. It's neutral at best, right? And a lot of it's just dumb. It just is. And it gets formulated in our childhood. Those experiences more than anything else. And the way brain chemistry works, once certain patterns of thought are established, and in a way of, um, that way of establishing a pattern is efficiency, right? It's the way our brains were made to be so that we didn't have to think through the same series of, of decisions that we had to last time. You, you know this from, has anybody here ever been driving and your mind wanders? You know where you're going, and the next thing you know, you're there. There were stoplights, there was traffic, you stopped for a pandemic, but did you think through every single little step? No, because your brain was able to efficiently accomplish the task at hand because those patterns have been formed in your brain. And once you've done that, okay, with drive, that's, that's a fairly innocuous example, right? The fact that we can kind of go on autopilot through some things. But how many here have tried to break a bad habit? Right? And you've got that pattern or that course, that, that connection in your brain. When I feel sad, I will eat. Right? Um, or when I... Um, when I achieve something important, I will treat myself by fill in the blank. And a lot of times it's not, a, not necessarily a very positive thing. Um, and, and all the messages that we, we heard, maybe one of the reasons we have a hard time feeling like God loves us is because we have very demanding parents. Or we had a, a taskmaster uh, father that was, that was honest, not for the nine things we did right during the day, but the one thing we did wrong. And so we feel like God's the same way. We get that pattern of thinking hardwired in our brain. So we can have a great day and then we mess one thing up and we think, it's a failure. Trying to rewire those things is hard because of the way our brains work. And, and frankly, it's a miracle if we, can, if we can break some of those habits. That's why we need God's help. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. Um, I see this, or I saw this a lot in the work that we did with children that come from abused or neglect or traumatic backgrounds because they learn certain ways of survival and coping that maybe it worked for them in that context, but then later on in life, it's not, it's not a great way to go through life. Um, not being able to trust people or always think that the other shoe's gonna drop and whatever success you have is gonna lead to failure sooner or later. And so if that's your thinking, you, um, you tend to um, almost, you tend to self-sabotage. If you feel like eventually you're gonna be a failure, it's a lot less stressful to get the failure out of the way. Does that make sense? Yes. So rather than have it sneak up and surprise you and blindside you again, you just self-sabotage. You, you, you shipwreck relations. This is why 
for a lot of kids that, that are in the foster care system, they bounce from home to home. Some of it's on the foster parents, maybe not being trained well enough to know that this is a pattern in these children, but a lot of times it's it's the kids that just when they're starting to feel that connection, they're like, well, this is scary. Everyone else that I've gotten close to before in the past has let me down, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna mess this up, and I'll be the bad kid again, and they'll send me off somewhere else. So, the reason these patterns form in our brains is, um, we have a master gardener here. It, it's like the, the idea of our brain cells are a little bit like those plants that set out tendrils, right? And the tendrils are to grasp on the things and they help the, help the plant grow in a certain direction. Well, we don't have tendrils in our brain. We have dendrils or den, dendrites. That's what they actually call those parts of the neuron that spread out and are looking for connections to form those pathways. And at certain points in our childhood, our brain cells are just firing like mad and they're looking for those connections. And if they don't get the positive feedback in one direction, they're like, oh, well, we're not gonna grow this direction. They shrink back. It's called arborization. And they grow this way. And that's just the way our brains function. It's something that God, that's part of the miracle of how God means. But if we've formed some ways of thinking about God or thinking about ourselves that aren't helpful, then our, if to worship God with our minds is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. This is why Paul talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind in, in Romans 12 too. Remember that passage? Being transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you're you're no longer patterning your thoughts and attitudes and therefore subsequent actions based on conforming to the world's values. So our hearts, our minds, next our souls. We need God's help to get, to get God's truth down deep into our souls. The word here is, uh, is also the word used for breath, suke, all right? So biblically, you don't have a soul. You are a soul because the Lord has breathed life into you. You are a living soul as a consequence of the Lord putting his breath of life into you. And more specifically, the soul is the seed of feelings, desires, affections, our, uh, even our aversions, the things that, that we don't want to have anything to do with. Our soul directs those things. And we can rightly think of the soul as the essence which differs from our body and is not, is not dissolved by death. You are in a mortal soul. The body is just a tent. Paul refers to it as a tent or a jar of clay. This, this flesh is, is passing. But what you are as a living soul is immortal. The real you, so to speak. To love God with our souls is an act of Returning to God what God has first given us, going back to our source. If, if God has breathed into us our living soul, then to give back to him that breath. And it's, it's something that even gets connected to the name of God, the name that God revealed to Moses, which is Yahweh, right? Now, in the Hebrew, we don't get the vowels. We just get the consonants. 
And it's been suggested by certain biblical scholars much smarter than me that those, those consonants put together are like the sound of breathing. Right? Have you ever gone to the doctor and say, stick the stethoscope on you and say, take a deep breath? And you go, <sighs> right? It's like, yeah, great. Now we throw in the vowels because it gives it a little bit more sound, but just the consonants themselves are like the sounds of our breathing. So think about that. It's like God says, this is how I want you to identify with me, that I am your very breath. You are a living soul because I have breathed into you. So we think about breathing in God and breathing back to God what he's first given us. That's the, the kind of core sense of loving God with all of your soul. Everything that you are, God, I, or everything that I am, I'm returning to you. And finally, strength. How do we worship God with our strength? Well, that idea of worshiping God with our strength might suggest different things to each one of us because some of us might consider ourselves relatively physically weak, others a little bit stronger. But the, the word here is iskus, all right, which is often translated might or power and is used of God, of God's power in us, rather than something which originates from us. As an example, uh, from that first chapter of Ephesians that maybe some of you have encountered already as you're doing your homework, Thank you, Merle, for the plug. I appreciate that. Um, but in Ephesians, in the first couple of chapters, it refers to God's mighty power in us, that resurrection power that, that God used to bring Jesus up out of the grave. That's, that's the power or the might, the same word that's used there. So worshiping God with all of our strength, um, while it does mean we put effort into it, I mean, it took effort to get here. It takes effort to sing it takes effort to read the word. It takes effort to pray. But it's a strength that, that if done so properly, then we recognize it doesn't really come from us. We are vessels, in a sense, for a strength that can be directed by the Spirit outwards towards a worshipful experience of God, our service to Him and our work on behalf of others. This brings us to the last point that Jesus makes, that second part of the greatest commandment, to love others as we love ourselves. Loving others as we love ourselves. What does that look like? Well, I think a great illustration of this is a simple one, and one used by James in chapter 1, 22 through 25. That's that passage that says, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says, like someone who looks at their face in the mirror, and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed with what they do. Now, self-love and self-concern, they're variations on the same theme. And even if we don't particularly care, you know, we talked about you are a living soul and this is, you know, your tent or your earthen vessel or whatever. Even if we don't particularly care for the make and model that we're, you know, that we're residing in, we wish that something was different, um, that God had given us a different make and model for our bodies to reside in. We understand that it's the only mode of transportation that we're given. 
Right? We can't go to the dealership and ask for a newer version, a different model. So we, we do something to keep up the appearance and maintain it as best we can. We feed our bodies, we clothe them, we rest them when they're weak or they're tired. If we don't, our bodies let us know. Amen? Amen. And as Jay points out, we look into mirrors on occasion to adjust the way that we appear in order to present at least a palatable version of ourselves for the consumption of others. If we look into a mirror, we see something that needs addressing, we do our best to address it. If we don't, we're like the person that looks at ourselves in the mirror and look at a wreck, just goes on about our day. Self-love doesn't mean that we have to have some sort of self-absorption. We're on the other extreme, total disregard of our appearance because we're not, you know, we're not judging ourselves and totally self-accepting. No, that's just silly. And somewhere, moderation is a virtue, somewhere in the middle. So likewise, love of others doesn't mean that we accept them without condition. Right? If somebody treats you like garbage, they just say, yeah, come on, keep treating me like garbage. No, that's not, that's not love for self, and that's not love for them, to allow them to continue to do that. Ignoring faults and failures, places where, where God might be pointing out to them through you and through your testimony to them that they should, they should look in the mirror of God's revealed word and, and maybe make some adjustments themselves. It's, it's not love, in a lot of cases, that restrains us from judgment or restrains me from judgment. It's indifference. It's indifference. I believe if someone is out of alignment with God's best for them, it is, is it loving to continue to have them go on that path without mentioning for them that there might be a better way? Is it? I don't think so. Back to the mirror illustration as we close from James. If someone comes up to you and, and smiles and says, do I have something on my teeth? While having a big chunk of lettuce glued to their front teeth, what is the loving thing to do? Not a rhetorical question. What's the loving thing to do? Answer truthfully. Answer truthfully. See, yeah, you got something right there. You know, kind of, and if they go for it and they miss it, you're like, nope, it's, you know, right here. That's the loving thing to do, right? Sometimes the simple truth is the truth. God's word, the truth, spoken in love, can be that mirror that people need to adjust their lives. Not like this. You know, just like if your friend asks you, have I got something on my teeth? They're going to be like, oh, what a slob. Are you kidding me? You go out of a house looking like that? No. You're, you're going to do it kindly because you... You know, if it's a good friend, you almost kind of share in their embarrassment in that moment. You kind of feel it with them. In the same way, that should be the way that we gently correct or rebuke one another. Or a friend or somebody that we love. That's it. That's the love that we need. That's the way we like to be approached if there's something that needs corrected in our lives. And loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Expressing loving concern and involvement with our neighbor for their best? Well, that's love. That's the love we need. Let us love well, church. Amen? Let's pray.
God, we ask that we would be given the strength to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Give us the courage when that love might suggest to us that we say something that might be hard for someone to hear. And give us, Lord, the humility that if someone speaks to us a word of correction or concern, that we would be willing to hear them out as well. That we would develop that sort of trust in our relationship as a fellowship. God, if we have, you know, if we've spoken uh, today, looked at your word, if there's some adjusting in our heart or our devotion and our admiration lives, things of the world rather than you, where our, our minds need to be transformed so that they aren't forming into certain patterns of, of behavior that are not shaped by your word and your love and your care for us. If our soul, you know, if we, if we haven't even thought about the fact that, that you're the source of all that we have and haven't even really considered loving you with our souls, or Lord, if, if our strength, our will, our effort gets expended everywhere else and then you get the leftovers. Lord, if any of that rings true today, we ask for your forgiveness. We pray that, that you would hear our hearts right now in this moment as we prepare for a time of communion. We don't want to have anything between us and you in that moment of, of meeting with you in the bread of God. So forgive us and renew us. We thank you that your word tells us that, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a promise, Lord. Whatever gun we come here with, we don't have to hold on to. We can leave it at the cross. Forgive us and renew us in this time that we could love you with all that we are. That's the love we need. That's the love we want to express to friend, to family, to neighbor. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.